It's an honor to open up for the inaugural presentation of this uh, lecture series. And like uh, anything that goes off first, we learn lessons. And uh, my lesson is always have a backup. My backup, I think, is being put together right now. If not, I do have a daunting challenge ahead of me, and that is to explain an enormously, incredibly complex exercise in geometry and angles and trigonometry without any pictures. <sighs> Aristotle, help me now. It's a real special honor for me as well that we are joined today by one of the finest engineer leaders in our regiment, Major General Brian Watson. As part of this introduction, I feel it's appropriate that we not only you welcome you home, sir, from your recent deployment to Afghanistan where you led thousands and thousands of our finest service members, but if I may, let us all give a round of applause to General Watson and welcome him to Norfolk. Go Packers, yeah, I was gonna hold up on this. We're uh, mutual Packer fans. <clears throat> if that applause isn't enough to generate enthusiasm and inspiration for tonight on the topic of engineering, I'd also like to say what a real honor it is for me being an engineer to be speaking at this venue. So perhaps some of you might know that General MacArthur was initially an engineer. Others of you might know he also served as our nation's chief of engineers. But everybody, I think, in this room loves a little bit of historic trivia. And if we get the presentation now, I got some too. But the piece of neat trivia is that our current chief of engineer, Lieutenant General Bostic, on his uniform, wears the same brass that General MacArthur sported when he was in the chief of engineers. These engineer castles get handed down from engineer, chief of engineers, to chief of engineers. And it's my hope that in the next few years, perhaps General Watson will be accepting those castles. The first slide that you see <laughs> is a beautiful 1860s rendition of Fort Norfolk. It's a piece of art. It's wonderful. And uh, it'll come up several times in this presentation. But what it does is it it, for me, makes a link to the very geography of a fort that's connected to the Norfolk District of the Corps of Engineers. Before I took command, I had the privilege of meeting the former commander, Colonel Andy Backus, and he brought me, he said, why don't you come see the command before you take uh, command about six months early, and I'll show you around, and I'll tell you a thing or two that you need to know. We, I got out of my car, Andy greeted me. I'm looking at this 1812 fort, right in front of me, and, and Colonel Backus is saying, blah, 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 blah. I don't remember a thing that he's saying. My attention is fixed on a hidden jewel, as Lewis pointed out. And that was a uh, 1812, 1860 era coastal fortification that was literally in my district's backyard. Then he said, why don't we talk in my office and I'll show you some slides and some backgrounds. And I went up to the office and there's these wonderful, capacious windows in there. And he gets out some slides and he tells me a little bit about the Norfolk districts. And what did I hear? Blah, 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 blah. I don't remember a thing because I am just looking out the, the uh, window over the Elizabeth River, looking across the river where the former Fort Nelson, the, the sister fort of Norfolk, stood, 
I look to my right and I see Hampton Roads. I look to the left and I see historic Norfolk. And I see where the river channels and where it comes to a tight spot. And I thought, what a great job this is. And if I was an engineer at this time, this is where I'd defend. So oh, this is looking positive. This is looking good. So, um, so a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the excitement that was generated at Fort Norfolk was because of the location. This is an enormous place, enormously incredibly interesting place. Now my second slide that you see up here <laughs> is a collage of the Norfolk District of the Corps of Engineers. And before I jump into Old Fort Norfolk, I just wanted to give a, a shout out to the over 400 employees of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers that represent your federal engineers in Virginia. A little bit of uh, North Carolina that you must want to, but not the Washington, D.C. national capital uh, area. We, we, uh, we do a little work up there, but that's another district. What you would see up there are various pictures of a district and our engineers working hard for, for you. Because after all, it's not my district. I don't command it. I mean, I command it, but it's not mine. It's your district. We do such uh, projects as military construction. So say you have a military base and it needs a new installation, a barracks, a dining facility, or whatnot, your federal engineers build that. If you haven't been to Fort Bellamore recently, there's a brand new multi-billion dollar hospital that was constructed up there, which is the pride and joy of our military uh, uh, engineers at Fort Norfolk. Also in that picture, what you would see is a hand holding a delicious, fresh, juicy oyster. <laughs> I love the guys, I don't like to eat them though. But what I love is these guys work seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and they do one thing. They pump in dirty water and they pump out fresh water, over five to 10 gallons a day per oyster. So that's why I love them, because they're cleaning up the bay. And the Norfolk District Corps of Engineers has the world's largest oyster remediation project ongoing right now. Uh, that uh, there's plenty of information out there, but we're partnering with Baltimore District and the Corps of Engineers to produce those, uh, uh, the nitrogen loading in the bay and clean it up. Also in that picture, you would see one of our watercraft that perhaps you see steaming around uh, the, the harbor from time to time. What that watercraft is doing is two things. One, it is picking up debris that could be hazard of navigation. This is, this is stuff big enough to puncture a ship if need be. And what it does also is it constantly looks at the bottom of the Norfolk Harbor to make sure we're deep enough. And if you haven't been reading the papers, there's been a lot of discussion about the post-Panamax vessels. The Panama Canal is getting bigger, the ships are getting bigger, and they draft 50 feet. And right now, we are the only harbor on the East Coast that is ready for these guys. There's two other harbors getting ready, and there's several harbors on the East Coast that are feverishly trying to get their drafts deeper but Norfolk's all set. So I'm very excited to be that federal engineer to make sure those federal navigation channels uh, remain open. Those are a few, and, and of course the environmental piece. As an environmental engineer, I take uh, nature very seriously. Although we have a passion to build in the Corps of Engineers, we also have a responsibility to sustain. So as we build things for our nation, we are also out there protecting our valuable wetlands, which serve as the kidneys for our waterways. Uh, we are we're also uh, re-nourishing beaches, like on Virginia Beach. We're actually uh, doing a lot of repair of beaches down right now. If you're in that area, you'll see our dredges working. And putting 
Well, it looks really like disgusting black water on the beach, but trust me, when it dries, it turns into the most beautiful white sand. I don't understand the process, but it's worth it. Um, so, I am going to now jump into my presentation about why I'm so excited about pre presenting this topic. So I've got this historic fort on Fort Norfolk. And I'm looking at it, and as Lewis inferred or, or said, I, I studied in France, I attended their engineering school, uh, and just like any other country, when you're there and you don't have a choice, you have to learn the language, history, and culture. And France is very proud of their military engineering. So they taught me about probably one of the most famous person you perhaps might not have ever heard of, and his name was Sebastien Colbaum. Colbaum was the master of military fortifications and attacking military fortifications as well. Colbaum had a concept, and he was in the six, he was in the six, born in the 1650s, at a time when um, Europe was a pretty interesting place to live. And if you wanted your land, you had to hold your land. And you could only hold your lands with fortifications. So they are very proud to have the father of military engineering called Vauban. Europe in the, in, the, in the 17th, 18th century was a very challenging place to, uh, to be living at the time. Okay. It was a challenging place to be uh, uh, trying to hold land at the time. What was going on is it was jockeying principalities and monarchies looking for um, <clears throat> a stable environment in which to grow an economy. It was the time of the Thirty Years' War, a, a, a war that most people don't realize the significance, but I imply that the significance was the um, Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, which created something enormously unique. So the Treaty of Westphalia in, in 1648 saw the emergence of the modern nation state. France, England, Poland, these recognizable names. Prior to that, it was little principalities jockeying for, for land and power and territory. Once we had the nation state established, what do nation states do? They either grow more powerful or less powerful, but the good ones knew how to tax their people, and the nation states were growing in prominence, and the monarchies began to arrive on the stage. Now, of course, many of you know about monarchies. You see those pictures of the great kings and queens and everything, and they're dressed to the nines, and they have gold and robes and everything, because after all, it is all about them when they're a king or queen, right? And that was sort of going on in the late 1600s, early 1700s. And the people were looking at this, and the people were saying, you know what, this isn't really fair. And then by the early uh, 19th century, uh, you saw us to see a lot of revolutions happening across Europe. It's textbook Western uh, civilization, but it does, it does have a connection. In the 17th and 18th century, we had England colonizing on our east coast. We had France looking for resources in Canada and the Louisiana Purchase, and of course we had Spain in Mexico and Florida. There's that picture of the signing of the Peace of Westphalia, which uh, brought up the rise of the nation state. Nation states led to monarchies. Remember, it was all about them. Some people didn't really agree with the monarchies and would have put on their red Phrygian hats and look at the kings and queens uh, with a little disdain. And ultimately, that's a nod to uh, future revolution. The same thing, or, or in the, no, to put it in the context of the United States, 
while the Westphalian states were getting established, there was a lot of claiming going on in the United States, and there you see an artist's representation of Plymouth Rock. Um, there was also some jockeying per, for position, because a lot of people were exploring the new world, and uh, space was running out quickly on the claims. We ourselves, at the end of the uh, eight, uh, 18th century, had our own revolution, and there you see the artist's rendition of the shot heard around the world at Concord. That could be argued was the impetus to start off the French Revolution, where the gentleman wearing the Phrygian hat up there would lead the masses to, uh, on the first Fr French Revolution. Second piece of trivia where France is connected to um, our army and our engineers is this hat can be seen in our own symbol of the United States Army right there on top. It's a distinct nod to the connection of revolutionary colonies supporting revolutionary France and the partnership that we have there. So let's put our military engineers into historical context. I already introduced to you Sebastian Vauban. He was in the mid 17th century. So he was doing his fortification designs when our, our, when Europe was making their claims to the United States and right up to the Peace of Westphalia. He might have been the great theorist, uh, but René was the, the great, he was the one who made the Vauban structures really come to life in the 18th century. And now he's followed by another French engineer named Duportet. Now what's interesting about him is he's wearing a colonial United States uniform. He's actually wearing the uniform of a colonial colonel in this because as Lewis told you before, we didn't have a lot of engineers in the United States when we were just starting out, so we had to coax, borrow, and entice the educated, uh, military-educated engineers over. And he, of course, might, he was also one of his uh, uh, students, was a name that was, might be familiar, Pierre L'Enfant. Uh, and we'll talk about a little bit more of them in the, uh, in the future. So, anybody see the pattern there going on? Vauban. René Dupotet, L'Enfant, Rochambeau, names that are distinctly Norwegian. <laughs> My dad told me to say that. But, but no, there's a trend there, and that trend is important. So the theory was developing in, in, in Europe centered in France. A little bit about uh, Vauban. I touched on his history already. He was actually, interesting story. You can read the slide, but I'll tell you, he was orphaned at a very young age and he was adopted, and he was adopted by parents who saw the importance of STEM. STEM is an acronym we use these days that stands for studying science, technology, engineering, and math. They thought that that was important, and I think that's important. And when you, when you, you, you uh, train in that framework of STEM and you have your outreaches in the school, and thank you for inviting our district into your schools for those outreach, we can, we can build some great engineers. Um, he also, um, didn't just do it on paper, he participated in fortifications, and I think it says 30, 30 sieges or 10 sieges? 10 sieges by the time he was 26. Sir, that kind of makes us look like slackers. I don't know, it's, it's, it's amazing. So he was, he was talking the talk and he was walking the walk. He was the foremost military engineer of his time, or as the kids would say, he's the bomb. Here's his basic idea, very basic. On the, on the right, you see a first-generation Vauban star fort. Imagine a flat plane as flat as this stage. You have a square, which is what you're trying to protect. Maybe a citadel, maybe a city, 
maybe a well or what have you, but think like a citadel, think like an old city. Around that, it's ringed by four bastions. On those bastions, the whole point of it, as you see from the shading on the lower side, is you are not going to let anybody get to your wall without engaging them from at least one to two directions with direct fire, whether that's a musket or a cannon or other um, uh, weapons of war. This principle still applies uh, to this day for uh, what the, our army calls strong points. On the right, you see an example of, a, of a Vauban's theory applied. It just doesn't stop there, though. Here are some examples of where you take Vaubanian engineering to the next level. The first slide is a first-generation uh, Vauban fort at Rotterdam. And then what's added around that star fort are various out outer works called redans, redans, if you will, and trenches. As, and what those points are there for is to keep the bad guys away from the areas between the redoubts, uh, the areas between the, the bastions. Uh, so you, the point is you want to keep the bad guys away from your walls. And then this goes on and on and on. And please don't check my math or my counting, but I see on the right, I believe that, well, that is Lille in France, and I think that's a fifth-generation Vauban fort. It just keeps getting added and added, and the point is, like I said, keep the bad guys away from your wall. So like I said, if Vauban was the theorist, René applied many of his theories in Europe. And here's a, here's a fortified city in Strasbourg. The next was Duportail, who was a student of René and studied Vauban. And he had participated in many uh, French operations, and he came over to the United States to help us with our fortifications. A little bit about uh, uh, Duportail, born in Orléans, which was my parents' first assignment as newly wedded uh, army officer officers over there, so I've got a secret place uh, for, for Orléans in my heart. He was secretly sent to the United States. So, you know, we all learned in our history books that Ben Franklin was working the French government and going to all these parties and stuff like that and socializing. This is what he was doing. He was enticing, he was convincing, he was getting capacity over the United States, among other things. And one of them was the convincing of sending Vauban, L'Enfant, and some of the other French engineers and educated individuals to help us in, our re in a revolution against France. Uh, he fortified Boston and Charleston. He directed a siege at Yorktown. He directed the siege at Yorktown. And I'd like to pause there for a second because I'm sure many of you have visited the Yorktown battlefield. You know that the battle was decided after the colonials took um, Redoubt 10. The point being is, when you have a fortification as Yorktown was, that's based on geometry and equations and all this science, it has weak points. It has vulnerabilities. And if you know what you're looking at, you can lead your force to take that weak point or that vulnerability and the entire fort collapses. Well, it doesn't physically collapse. The, the defensive position becomes un, 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 untainable. That was what Duportail did for our nation, is he gave the engineering moxie to help lead the assault or plan the assault on Yorktown. Uh, that hyperlink goes, uh, it won't go now, and I'm not going to uh, spend time, but I encourage you that if you've never seen the movie, the recent movie, Last of the Mohicans, there's a fantastic scene in there where the British commander of the fort, Colonel Monroe, says, gentlemen, tomorrow the fort falls. And his adjutant's saying, what, no one's firing us. But but 
Monroe knows that the French and the Indians have dug close enough to the fort that they can move up their siege artillery, protected, and that's all it takes. So then the, the fort falls, the fort surrenders because it's untenable, and then the next scene you see the British laying down their arms. That's the same reason when, when that redoubt fell and York, Yorktown fell, the whole fort wasn't wasted. The bottom line, you keep that, you take that key point in a Volbanian star fort, the whole defense will, um, will be compromised. He uh, returned to France after our revolution to help the king over there, but quickly realized that the king over there had his own revolution on hand, so he came back to the United States. He had a nice piece of land at Mount Vernon uh, where he wanted to retire, and on the way back to France, uh, I, and I'm almost sure, but I, I believe he, he passed away from a pulmonary embolism. But um, one of my heroes, American heroes. Not a French name at all, at all but a shout out to Tad there, Kosciuszko. Uh, the point of him is here's another visiting engineer who designed the fortifications at West Point, uh, one of our most fortified areas in our nation. Very critical because if you took West Point, you effectively separated the United States in half. So very important to hold that fortification and another visiting engineer who helped us out at our early, uh, at our early years. General Watson knows this story well, as does Colonel Howe, but the importance of this uh, area it cannot be uh, emphasized enough. In this picture, right on the south of West Point, there is a defensive position that the British had called Stony Point. From that, they could launch assaults up to and conceivably take West Point. To make a very long and wonderful story short, uh, under the command of Mad Anthony Wayne, we attempted to take this fort, and we lost the commander, and we lost the deputy commander, and we looked around for someone to lead us to take this fort. A French captain stood up, and he said, I will lead you. His name was De Fleury, and he led the colonials to, the, to, taking, to take Stony Point from the British uh, in a remarkable example of French and American partnership that's forged in blood Congress was so impressed, the first medal that they forged for this accomplished medal, for this accomplishment, is called the De Fleury Medal. Uh, and it's still in use today. It's our regiment's highest decoration for service. And um, again, it's that linkage between the shared partnership between France and American engineering that, that we hold so valuable. So back to the French connection. We left off with um, Vauban to René de Duportail, and then Congress sort of ran out of money. It was after the, uh, the American Revolution. Yeah, <laughs> we won't go there. Um, and we could not afford to bring on any more professional engineers. So what we did is we start tagging what's called in, in the sources that I read, temporary engineers. Among these temporary engineers, you see L'Enfant. There is a, a few other names. Uh, but there was one who was working down here at Fort Norfolk as well. He wasn't French, he was Swiss, but he was trained in the works in Bobanian architecture, uh, a fortification, and his name was Rivardi. So you did have a temporary engineer working down here uh, that was, again, European trained. Um, L'Enfant was, uh, was um, instrumental in the fortification of Fort Mifflin. That's a fine example of a star fort. I think you can see that's a perfect first generation star fort that's uh, at uh, Fort J in New York City. Another example of uh, L'Enfant's work was the design of Fort McHenry. You can see the Vaubanian star there. 
And of course, we also know that he had a little part in laying out uh, a little urban and regional planning project that he was given, which is our nation's capital. Not bad for a temporary engineer. Um, there is, uh, Fort Norfolk was also being initially fortified and planned during this time. And that brings us to the end of the formal French connection. So let's kind of move the older guys out and make some room for someone who distinctly does not have a French name. His name is Thayer. He and Armistead, I venture too, that's not a French name either. But you're starting to see the rise of what uh, Lewis was calling the homegrown engineers. These guys were clearly not born in France, but there's still a connection there. Sylvanus Thayer had a very prestigious uh, career as well. He, uh, he fought in the revolution. Um, he, uh, he, he helped uh, lay out, he improved the fortifications at Norfolk. Look at that, in 1815, where did he go for training? He went to France. And you can bet you know what he studied. He probably studied the same things I studied there about 10 years ago, and that's Vobanian fortifications. Uh, he would go on to take that knowledge and, and design Fort Warren and Fort Independence, which I'll show you in a second. And he must have been a good, doing good work because he became the superintendent at West Point as well. Here's some of his work. Fort Warren, looks very Volbanian. Beautiful shot of Fort Independence. Clearly you can see the French influence at these forts designed by Thayer. Okay, here we start having some fun. Again, the 1860s picture, which is a very pretty picture. But for me, uh, it doesn't show all the great things of Fort Norfolk, but it brings out a point that I'm trying to make. What's different here? Yeah, there's a curved thing in there. Actually, that's called a curved bastion. This is what struck me on my first day. This is why when I came to Fort uh, Norfolk and Lewis and I walked the parapet, you were talking to me and I heard blah, 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 and blah, blah, no. I was fixed on that curved parapet because I'd never seen anything like that before. And that really drove my curiosity. Clearly, I saw some other things that were recognizable because as we know, Vobanian uh, uh, design, what they taught me, it follows rules. And you learn stuff and you want to see it applied in every day. And you come to Fort Norfolk and you, you see all this, but I don't see any curve on that. If anybody can find a curve on that, um, you're better than I. So let's take a look at, let's dissect Fort Norfolk a little bit. Bastion, that's an easy one. Iglesias, that's a slope that keeps the people away from your wall because that's what you want to do, make them fight uphill. A curtain, the area in between two bastions, which is, tends to be one of your most vulnerable areas of a fortification. A flank the side of a bastion so you can shoot down along a wall if case people, in case people come close to your wall. A parapet, that thing you put the guns and the cannons on, which is a real purpose of having a fort in the first place. A salient, a protrusion into an area you need to cover. And a curved bastion. Again, I thought this was very strange, very unique, and my, my curiosity was stimulated here. Think about anything on a curve. The reason why Vauban did not have curves is curves are bad. The point of a fixed fort of fortification is to do what? It's to keep the bad guys away. So 
All things given, this is my own feeble attempt at some pen and ink drawing of if, if Vauban was here and he designed it, it might look like something like that, a typical first generation star fort. And you see, and don't get me on the numbers, I don't know how many cannon you could put on, but the point is I put five cannon up there and I'm the commandant of Fort Norfolk, so I can put five cannon. I put five cannon up on that bastion uh, to oversee, uh, to fire out on the troops, uh, the advancing troops. That's a Volbanian star. Here is a curved bastion. And on this curved bastion, I believe I've got nine cannon. I got more than five. So the idea is I can get more cannon on a curve, which means I can get more hot lead and steel down range, which means I can shoot more bad guys. Yeah, that's nine cannon. Now, I was on this fort today with uh, an engineer friend of mine uh, from Arlington National Cemetery. By the way, this is my most sacred project. We are doing Arlington right. And if you want more about Arlington, I would be happy to talk to this group about the great thing our Corps is doing at Arlington National Cemetery. But I had her and the chief of staff on that curved bastion, and my, my, my public affairs officer was out there taking pictures of us, Patrick Bloodgood, and he was standing down where it says about nine cannon. And I said, Patrick, walk towards the curved bastion. When he got to the middle of the curved bastion, Patrick disappeared. You can't see him, and no one could fire on him. So although you're maximizing cannon, you are making a very vulnerable area where if you had a marine amphibious landing by British Marines or something, the first thing I would tell them to do is run up as fast as you can and press yourself against that curved wall, because none of those bastions or salients can fire at you. The, the, uh, the uh, counter effort is, Let's make a curved bastion to get more cannon up there so the Marines never get that close and we can blow them out of the water. That's the idea. That's the idea of the curved bastion right there. The threat was not from land from that side. The threat was from the sea. So ships coming down from the north, if they made it by, by Craney Island, which you know they didn't, but if they made it by Craney Island, um, the second line of defense was that partnership between Fort Norfolk on, on uh, my side of the river in Fort Nelson, which uh, occupies the area where the Navy Hospital is. That circular bastion could allow those cannon to sweep the entire area of the narrows where you see the channel thinning out. Okay, well, I, my curiosity wasn't satisfied because it's still a very strange looking fort uh, when I looked at it. So I did a little research, and you know what? These circular bastions, these, uh, um, these, uh, these curved bastions were, were not new. They were appearing in North America. On the upper right, you see a curved bastion that was actually an old Spanish fortification down in Florida. So people knew how to do this. You can't really see it. It's small, but on the upper left, there's Fort Monroe at a later date. Uh, it's got a curved bastion in it. And what I thought was fascinating is this little Fort Powhatan. I don't even know if it still exists, but I found a picture of it. It's a contemporary, as you see, to Fort Norfolk. And it has the Volbanian design with the curved bastion in it because it overlooks water. Remember our visiting Swiss temporary engineer, Rivardi? He knew this, okay? So his first design at Fort Norfolk, working with uh, the local militias, was to put in a crude earthen wall that would support cannons in generally a curved shape. Again, we didn't have a lot of money. There's no fancy schmancy stuff going on here, but he knew he wanted a curved water battery. The nice thing about a water battery 
you don't have to worry about how high your gun is. You fire it flat, because what do you think happens to a cannonball when it hits the water? Skips. So as long as you've got your sight on the ship and you're firing over water, you're going to get a hit. That's why water batteries are so effective. However, that's why they're so vulnerable, too, because they're down there by the water. So the, verse, the very first early version um, of Rivardi's work was that raised earthwork uh, protecting our side of the harbor. That's what I would call it. Again, please, I'm not, I'm not tidewater born. This is my interpretation uh, based on, 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 on the literature that I've read. And uh, any specific questions to the specific uh, history, I'd love to entertain, but I'm quickly going to defer over to Steve Forrest or others who know a lot more about the local history of the area. But Rivardi's work was a water battery with a barracks behind it. And there's a plat map of it. We found that. Okay, I think this name is familiar to you. He's a Virginian. He's an engineer. His brother command fought at Fort McHenry. Um, he was actually a chief of engineers as well after he helped with Fort Norfolk. And he is the father of, uh, of Armistead at Gettysburg, day three, the, the angle. Very fascinating individual. And I think when you're doing a, a research project like that, you find a name like this, and you so want to stop, you know, it's like French fortifications. No, I want to learn about this guy. So I, I curb my appetite, and I think we'll talk about him at another lecture series, because you could do a series on him alone. What Armistead did is he showed up at Rivardi's initial works and improved it. Now, the literature is sort of sketchy on this, but what I know he did is he took Rivardi's rough water battery curve and he improved that curve bastion. He also added a northern, what's called a demi-redoubt, a partial redoubt to the north because he's concerned about his flank, his side up there. And because troops need somewhere to live and eat and, and stuff, he put some barracks in there. And the barracks are in blue, the fortifications are in black. So I would solve that, call that an earthen water battery with a demi-redoubt and barracks. Now, there are also indications, of course, that he added to some outer works, because you just can't have nothing to your rear, okay? So I've described the general outline of Fort uh, Norfolk in this, because then we jump over to the next engineer who was working at Norfolk, Norfolk helping direct it, and that was the Sylvanus Thayer, who was the Volbanian-trained engineers. So Thayer is at Fort Norfolk. I don't think it looked like this. Uh, I think this area was a combination of the work between Armistead and the theory of Thayer. This is sketchy, and I'd love to talk to anybody who's got a little more deeper knowledge of this on the reception. But one thing I do know that perhaps it was a joint venture of Armistead and Thayer to make this a first-generation Volbanian star fort, but Thayer took it to the next generation by defending the rear curtain, which is enormously vulnerable with a radar to keep the bad guys away from it. Because, by the way, do you see the cheat that was done to save money on this fort? Does anybody pick up what was done? The rear curtain is actually the barracks. They just tied the wall into the barracks. Now, that barracks is a strong barracks. It's still there. It's not going anywhere. But that was a little money-saving initiative. But there was interesting, so interested in defending that. He built a redon. He put a glacius out there. Still not happy. He put another one out there because the idea is to keep the bad guys away from the fort. And because it was a real estate problem and he didn't own the land to the south, that's my theory, he put a 
uh, Palisade up, which no longer exists today. Um, but it's composed of these, uh, you know, where, where is, where's Craig? I know, I always forget this name. What, what are those things? What's it? Ballers, yeah. And uh, to protect his, so you, you see the evolution of the uh, French influence now taking full scale at Fort Norfolk. So I would call this a water battery with a second generation Vauban Star Fort. Here she is, my favorite sketch of Fort Norfolk. There's prettier ones, but this one, you gotta love it as an engineer because it's got details. You see, and, and I'm sorry, I've turned it uh, uh, clockwise about 90 degrees. You, you see the, the water bat battery beautifully sweeping the Elizabeth River to the north and you see the redoubts, and you see the redans. No one's gonna come close to that fort unless they come at it from the water. So, little French savoir faire meets American ingenuity. By the way, ingenuity, Latin word, ingen, French word, engin, gen engineer. So that's where the word engineer comes from. That goes to uh, um, in ingenuity. And the other thing is, is uh, there was a lot of people digging and working hard. Those individuals are called sappers. And I'm gonna tell you about a sapper in a little bit. But in the French parlance, when a sapper gets education in engineering, he becomes a genie, okay? Ingenuity, engineer. So there's a lot of connections there with our military history too. Well, right about when it was all got right, things started happening. In around 1830, someone invented a cannon that shoots a rifle round that spins. And with that invention, Fort Norfolk became obsolete. Has anybody driven from Fort, um, some, from Mount Vernon up to Reagan National Airport, up the uh, um, George Washington Parkway? If you have, there is a beautiful fort on the far bank. It's called Fort Washington. It is one of the most impressive, beautiful Wilbonian structures you'll find. Five years after it was built, it was obsolete because it was made by the same construction techniques that Thayer and everybody else was using, brick in front of earth, holding back earth like a big retention wall, and all it takes is two rounds, rifled round to punch her right through that from an area where you're, you're way far away. So that rifle round spent, spent, spelled the end to uh, Fort Norfolk. That didn't take anybody as a surprise. They just simply moved the major defense up north at the front of Hampton Roads at Fort Monroe and Fort Wool, which Fort Will, Will, by the way, is a Vobanian fort uh, designed by Robert E. Lee when he was a lieutenant and an engineer. So yes, it was the end of an era. So Fort, fort Norfolk during the Civil War didn't per se have too much of a traditional coastal fortifications. It had an, uh, other roles during the Civil War. Roles that, um, please, you can ask questions about. Uh, I'm not a Civil War historian for the area, area but um, the, my point is as a Volbanian star fort with that function as a coastal fortification, it was ob obsolete and uh, enjoying a little more bucolic times. So here we advance up back up to this picture I like to use because it displays the fortifications well, Fort Norfolk in 1860. It became obsolete, and this is in a very busy picture, but on the right side, you see Fort Monroe. Fort Monroe is a multi-generation Volbanian star fort. Within a few later years, it became obsolete because our, our military and our nation had entered into the Endicott era, which are those super big guns. All these iron guns that fired from reinforced concrete parapets that could knock out ships way out there which made Fort Monroe then obsolete as a star fort. And you saw the end of the Volbanian star forts 
worldwide. Uh, you could think about that in a, in a context of France, where you used to have those Volbanian forts along the frontier protecting them. They were replaced by the famous Maginot Line, which is distinctly not a Volbanian fort. Here's Fort Norfolk today. Uh, as I said before, there's the wonderful employees of the Corps of Engineers standing on the curved bastion, our headquarters in the back, one of our uh, debris vessels. And um, every one of my, I think I, sp I speak on behalf of every one of my employees, 400 in, in, the, in the Corps of Engineers, in the Norfolk District, say how proud we are to serve you. Again, it's been my honor, sir, and honor. Thank you very much. Thank you.